Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today I'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with a verdict today in a civil trial in a Manhattan federal court that found former President Donald Trump liable for sexual assault and defamation, fining him $5 million in damages. Joining us to gauge the reaction from Republicans and rival Republican candidates to determine whether morality will become an issue for a party that includes a sizable evangelical and Christian fundamentalist constituency is Anthea Butler, the Geraldine R. Siegel Professor in American Social Thought and Chair of Religious Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. She's the author of a number of books, including The Rise of the New Religious Right and, most recently, White Evangelical Racism, The Politics of Morality in America, and we will discuss how much Trump has lowered the bar in terms of America's moral outrage now that a former president has been found guilty of sexual assault in what would have been, just a few years ago, a huge scandal with exploding headlines. Then with today's White House meeting between President Biden and House and Senate Republican and Democratic leaders over the debt limit, having concluded without an agreement over the debt ceiling, we will speak with Robert Hockett, who has had first-hand experience working at the International Monetary Fund and the Federal Reserve Bank of New York and continues to consult to a number of U.S. federal, state and local legislators and regulators. He drafted Representative Alexander Ocasio-Cortez's Green New Deal resolution for the House of Representatives and officially advises her on economic policy. He's the Edward Cornell Professor of Law and a Professor of Public Policy at Cornell University, whose latest books are Money from Nothing or Why We Should Stop Worrying About Debt and Learn to Love the Federal Reserve, Financing the Green New Deal, A Plan of Action and Renewal, and The Citizen's Ledger, Digitizing Our Money, Democratizing Our Finance. And we'll discuss his article at the New York Times, This is What Would Happen If Biden Ignores the Debt Ceiling and Calls McCarthy's Bluff. Then finally, we'll look into why the Writers Guild strike has much broader significance beyond Hollywood in terms of the labor movement, growing inequality, the creeping gig economy, and the corporate embrace of AI, artificial intelligence, as a tool to replace human workers. Joining us is Hamilton Nolan a labour writer for In These Times, who has spent the past decade writing about labour and politics for Gorka, Splinter, The Guardian and elsewhere. He's currently writing a book on the labour movement and more of his work can be found at his Substack page at hamiltonnolan.com. We will discuss his latest article at The Guardian, This Historic Writer's Strike Matters for Everyone, Not Just Hollywood. And before we begin, I would like to thank our sustaining listeners whose continued and growing support for background briefing enable us to remain independent without corporate underwriting, commercials, paywalls, or constant fundraising as we deliver a daily news analysis by seeking out the most knowledgeable experts closest to the scene to explore three or more major stories and issues in depth with our sound bites and spin. As a dangerous and devious serial liar and selfish sociopath continues to haunt our politics and poison our social discourse, whose angry and armed followers assault our democracy and attempt to impose a tyranny of the minority in lockstep with their fraudulent wannabe mob boss and Fuhrer, your monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our tax-deductible non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation at publictruthmedia.org contribute to an informed citizenry needed to protect and defend the will of the majority as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. 
And joining us now is Anthea Butler, the Geraldine R. Siegel Professor of American Social Thought and Chair of Religious Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. She's the author of a number of books, including The Rise of the New Religious Right and, most recently, White Evangelical Racism, The Politics of Morality in America. Welcome to Background Briefing, Anthea Butler. Hi, Ian. How are you? Very well, thanks, Anthea. And today in a Manhattan federal court, a jury of six men and three women deliberated for only three hours and came up with the unanimous verdict, finding Trump liable for sexual assault and defamation and fining him $5 million in uh, damages. And we're learning, of course, that at least one member of the jury was a MAGA Republican. So what do you make of this uh, verdict? Well, first off, I think I'm not surprised. Second, um, I think that I wish it was more than $5 million. And third is I am very interested to see what is going to happen from this point forward with Trump supporters, especially evangelicals, who have overlooked everything else. But this is a civil case. He has been found guilty, and he's been found guilty on a number of counts. And so I wonder if they will still continue to support him with the same fervor that they have before. Well, of course, those questions arose uh, back in 2016, just before the election, when the Access Hollywood tape revealed him saying on camera that he stars like him can grab women by the private parts. And that didn't seem to work and didn't seem to deter evangelicals from voting for him. But curiously enough, this tape came back with a vengeance, if you will, in the E. Jean Carroll trial. And in the deposition, Trump was asked about whether he uh, still feels that uh, what he said then is what he believes. And his answer was absolutely ridiculous. He dug the hole even deeper for himself. So I find that a little ironic. Yes, indeed. I, I mean, I believe the quote was, um, they've done it for millions of years. Right. And so I'm just like, really? There were famous people in Neanderthals. Okay. But, you know, all kidding aside, I think that, you know, Trump's lies get more fantastical as he gets cornered, right? And so depending on who's cornering him, he continues to, you know, make these falsehoods up in the hopes that they will carry him forward. But every time he does, they backfire on him. And so I think in this particular case, where he's just been on his um, platform, Truth Social, saying this is a witch hunt, it's just like he says the same things over and over again. But this time, I think that this is going to cause him a lot more pain than he realizes. In what way, though? Do you think that the only Republicans that have said anything, uh, Mike Rounds, a senator, they said didn't really come out very strongly, but said it's a problem. And Aisha Hutchison, who's running against him. Well, um, that's, yeah, I, I I think you're right. I also think that they're trying to figure, they're trying to size it up. So the question becomes, is this the first in the in a series of hits? You know, we still have the Georgia case. E. Jean Carroll can still bring another case against him because it's not just one case. This is a case from 2020, 2021. She still has a defamation case against him while he was president. That could even get more damages, right? So we've got that. We've got all these other things. And then you have to sort of, uh, you know, think about what are these other candidates going to do, especially Ron DeSantis? And I'm very curious to see if he is going to, um, you know, get a little bit of a backbone and start coming at Trump using this or using some other legal problems that he has. 
But it does seem, Anthea, that uh, Trump has lowered the bar in terms of America's moral outrage. I mean, the fact that a former president has been found guilty of sexual assault and defamation just a few years ago would have been a huge scandal with exploding yes, headlines. So we're a damaged country. Aren't we? We're a damaged polity. It's been coarsened, has it not? Yes, I would have said we were damaged before this verdict. But, you know, I think that this is damaging to the office of the presidency, first of all. Secondarily, it's damaging whether they want to admit it or not to the Republican Party. The top person in the Republican Party right now has been found to be a sexual predator. And, you know, whether or not that's what they want, if this is what they say about morality, right? And all these moral issues that they're they're trying to put forward to make the public do what they want them to do. I think that it's really important to start, you know, especially for the Democrats, to start pressing this. It, I mean, they don't press it enough about the sexual proclivities of Republicans and the kinds of things that they do. So I think it's really important to, you know, if the Republicans won't do it, the Democrats need to just continue to hammer it home. And I hope that um, basically, especially for the presidential race, that uh, President Biden decides to not be that person who he has been trying to see the best in everyone and decides to just go for the jugular. Well, it's pretty clear that the Republican Party is now the party of Donald Trump and George Santos. Yes. But that's not to say that the Trump supporters, and in particular the evangelical supporters and the fundamental, Christian fundamental supporters, they, I think they probably know that he's a flawed person, to put it mildly, but they like what he does and they feel that he's on their side. He's their champion. So that's the spell that has to be broken, isn't it? Well, yeah, I think that's true. But I think also that this is part of cracking that spell, right? Because you can't continue to have somebody who stays in trouble all of the time, right? I mean, this is just sort of one of those kind of things where it's just one more on the pylon of so many things that Trump has, you know, working against him right now. And there will come a moment where they're going to have to decide, like, do we go with this this hobble damaged guy because he can say all these things? Or are we going to, you know, look for someone else? But will he, and as he is already saying, will they believe that this is a witch hunt and that this no, is? I think they know it's not a witch hunt. I, I think that five million dollars says it's not a witch hunt. First of all, and then secondarily, everything has been a witch hunt. So you know, you can only cry wolf for so long, right? But I think you know the interesting part will be tomorrow. I, I think that you know I'll bring this up. CNN is is really wrong in giving him this time in New Hampshire. And I don't expect them to really be very tough on him, but I think it'll be very interesting to see how he behaves at that town hall meeting. Well, already Liz Cheney is running ads in New Hampshire yeah. about holding him responsible and pointing out that no president in the history of the United States has been guilty of the kind of sedition and the coup attempt. And it's very graphic showing all of the police being beaten up at the Capitol so, again, she's she's a, a Republican. Uh, she's a, the daughter of a Republican vice president. The question is, is it going to work on the Republicans? Or, or has she already been tainted by the fact that she was a part of the uh, January 6th commission? 
Well, I mean, she's tainted with Republicans, obviously. But I think what we can expect are two things. One is these commercials will, will work for if they don't work for Republicans, they're definitely going to work for Democrats. Right. Because it's going to it's going to remind Democrats of everything is done. And now hopefully they'll get people out to the polls. That's number one. Number two is I think it will work for the remaining moderate Republicans that are out there. Okay. And so those moderate Republicans who may be, oh, you know, I voted for Trump, but I'm really, I find it distasteful about one six. I find it distasteful about this case. I find it distasteful that there's so much that he's done since then. I think that you might see his support waning because they have some other people in the race. And I think Everyone wants to make this a fait accompli, but I don't believe that it will be in that sense. I mean, it's not to say that Trump couldn't end up being the nominee. It's just that I think that this gets a lot stickier. Well, Anthea Butler, you mentioned tomorrow's town hall on CNN, which seems to be the result of the of the new leadership at Warner Brothers Discovery. They just seem to be these corporate cynics. I mean valueless people who don't understand journalism, um, etc. And he's, a, you know, on this cost-cutting mania, firing people and downsizing CNN and then making this desperate bid to win over <laughs> what mm-hmm. Fox, yeah. Fox viewers. I don't know what the hell the strategy is. Yeah. But from what I understand, that they've made sure Trump's got the deal that he wanted and CNN have caved, or at least this these creeps in charge have caved and they have a friendly moderator and the hall will be stacked with the MAGA Trumpsters. Probably. I mean, you know, I actually was just at St. Anselm's a few weeks ago for a talk. So I am expecting there to be um, maybe stacked with some MAGA Republicans, but also some very disgruntled people outside protesting. So that's number one. Number two is I think that CNN has a problem and they're trying to be Fox light and I don't think that they can be there. And Fox has a problem because they don't have Tucker anymore. Right. So even today on Fox, they had to admit, you know, uh, you know, he played the they played the Trump tape, right. They played the deposition and he said things in the deposition that, you know, came back to haunt him. So I think even for Fox news, it'll be interesting to watch them because they have to make a decision do we ride with this guy or are we going to start, you know, kind of letting loose of him a little bit and seeing what else we could do? It's just, you know, it's a shame, you know, and I don't say this because I like him, but it's a shame that Ron DeSantis has, you know, has a very dour personality because this might be a time where he could he could definitely capture some people in the Republican Party. But, you know, he's got the money, but he doesn't have the um, persona. Let's put it like that. Yeah, as he has a major deficit uh, or deficiency for for a politician, and that is he doesn't like people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He really doesn't like people. He especially doesn't like mice. Right. So back to the trial itself of Eugene Carroll, and it's pretty amazing that a 79-year-old woman is the first to really strike a blow against Trump. Obviously, the rape charge against him rested on the without getting too graphic, rested on the notion of penetration. So I guess the jury compromised with sexual assault, right? Yes, that's correct. And, you know, I personally would have thought that, that you know, 
however the penetration happened, that could have counted as rape. But apparently the jury didn't see it that way. But I think the damages awarded speak to how much they did believe E. Jean Carroll and what they felt that Donald Trump did wrong. And I don't think he really has a case on appeal. And he has to worry about her bringing up the other case. So these are going to be issues for him. And whether whether we think that he's Teflon or not doesn't matter. The, the thing is, is that it's happened. And he didn't bother to come back and, um, you know, confront her as he lied and said he would in Ireland. And so now this hinders him because, you know, most let, let's put it this way. Most there's a lot of men who are politicians and other powerful figures who have done things like this to women. The question is, is what happens to you when it comes out? And we could see what happened with, um, you know, Epstein eventually went to jail, you know, died in jail. Uh, We could think about Harvey Weinstein, who has been going through several cases and is still in prison right now. Once this happens to you, then the, the question becomes, what next? Right. And so I think in Trump's case, he has to really consider that this is a problem for him. He can't just laugh it off. Neither can the Republican Party. So are you expecting any major evangelical figure to say anything? Like, no. let, let me give you an example, Anthea. No, no, no. An easy, I'll give you an easy one. <laughs> Mike Pence. No, Mike Pence is not going to say anything because he barely could get himself to, to you know, testify on behalf of his own life for one six. So he's not going to say anything because mother won't let him. That's number one. And number two is, is that, you know, he would feel like that was beneath him. Right. But I would not put it past him to think about having surrogates to do it. So the question is, who are the surrogates that are going to come out and say these kinds of things? Or, you know, evangelical um, leaders. What what does the SBC say? Southern Baptist Convention. What do these other people say? And that's a good question. Probably what most of them, especially on the, you know, more charismatic Pentecostal side are going to say that this is just an attack of Satan, right? This is the general idea of what people say. The others, like the Southern Baptist Convention, will try to ditch this and not say as much as they can. So the idea of King Cyrus, is that still at play amongst evangelicals in terms of excusing Trump's behavior? Well, I think it's worse than King Cyrus now. I would say that they think that he's a mini Jesus. And and that's probably even scarier because, you know, the King Cyrus talk that was back, you know, at the you know, when he was running and actually, you know, maybe the first two to three years of his uh, presidency. Now it's gone into these analogies about how he's basically a messiah like figure and that he's been persecuted. So they could take this and say that this is just one more level of persecution of Trump. But, you know, Jesus never got persecuted because he molested a woman. Or. Oh. Or gave secrets to the Saudis. Yeah, or <laughs> I, other things, right? Shall so. I list them all? Uh, told uh, the Secretary of State of Georgia to find 11,870 votes, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, the stuff is piling up there in the wings, right? This is like yeah. a lot of uh, planes are about to land with damaging cargo. Yeah, and I think, you know, the question is how the planes land is is the real question. Is, is our democracy broken enough to where it doesn't matter? You know, I think that's the that's the real question here. Is it does it matter? It, is our democracy so bad right now that people will not care that this man has been this way? And and that's a huge question. Maybe you know, maybe these people don't care. And maybe between 
you know, this is the, the real question is, is maybe between the fact that people might not care and that there has been enough damage to voting rights that, you know, perhaps he gets in anyway. Right. But that would be a victory for, I mean, the subtext here is American fascism. Yes. It's on the rise. It's clear and present danger. Trump is the champion. He is a perfect fascist wannabe dictator. Then you're left with a question, you know, is this Christian fascism, American fascism? How, how do you see it? Because yeah. unless Biden defines it and the Democrats and the people in the, in the middle in this country wake up, you could end up with the first American dictator. Yeah, we could. And, and that is a very scary thought. But I don't know, and I, I've said this before and I'll say it again, I don't know that the Democrats or Biden, for that matter, have the stomach to fight the battle that needs to be fought. And I hope that they do, but they cannot continue to expect that, you know, to just tell people to vote is the only thing that you can do. It's not. And and that, I think, is really important to, to stress, is that voting is one thing, but when your voting rights have already been compromised, it's just difficult. Right. But just in closing, what should he be telling the American people? That we are losing democracy. Every day he should be pounding this. He should, he should not make his message be anything but that, that we are losing our status in the world, that we are um, losing democracy, and that it is imperative for us not to lose this democracy. And I think that's the message that he should be saying, and he should be giving guidelines and things about how to talk about this. And he should be hammering all the kinds of things that are happening on the state level, whether we're talking about abortion rights, whether we're talking about, you know, the degradation of schools, you know, not teaching certain books, you know, in Texas limiting, you know, tra um, limiting transgender people or um, limiting tenure. All of these kinds of issues are all about bringing fascism in. And what I don't hear is a coherent conversation from the Democratic Party about any of this. And that is what is frustrating to me. Well, Anthea Butler, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Anthea Butler, who's a Geraldine R. Siegel Professor in American Social Thought and Chair of Religious Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. She's the author of a number of books, including The Rise of the New Religious Right and, most recently, White Evangelical Racism, The Politics of Morality in America. We're going to take a brief station break and back look into today's inconclusive meeting between President Biden and our Speaker McCarthy, and discuss what would happen if Biden ignores the debt ceiling and calls McCarthy's bluff. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Robert Hockett, who has had first-hand experience working at the International Monetary Fund and the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, 
and continues to consult with a number of U.S. federal, state, and local legislators and regulators. He drafted Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's Green New Deal resolution for the House of Representatives and officially advises her on economic policy. And he's the Edward Cornell Professor of Law and a Professor of Public Policy at Cornell University. And his latest books are Money from Nothing or Why We Should Stop Worrying About Debt and Learn to Love the Federal Reserve, Financing the Green New Deal, A Plan of Action and Renewal, and The Citizen's Ledger, Digitizing Our Money, Democratizing Our Finance. And he has an article at the New York Times, This is What Would Happen If Biden Ignores the Debt Ceiling and Calls McCarthy's Bluff. Welcome to Background Briefing, Robert Hockett. Thanks, Ian. Great to be with you again. Well, thanks for joining us. And McCarthy and President Biden, along with McConnell, Schumer from the Senate and uh, Hakeem Jeffridge, the minority uh, House leader, they all met today, but uh, the meeting broke up without an agreement. Mm-hmm. So do you think that Biden did call his bluff? Because the fact that their meeting in itself was kind of made me nervous because I don't see why you should negotiate with terrorists. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Biden has been quite firm about not being willing to negotiate with terrorists or to essentially, you know, bargain with hostage taking. Um, So I was a little disturbed as well um, in the same way that you were and for the same reasons, I'm sure. Um, But then it occurred to me that maybe part of the reason he did this was simply to make clear to the public that it wasn't the case that he's simply, you know, unwilling to talk. Uh, to Republicans or to McCarthy, but that rather he's only willing to talk to them about A, lifting the debt ceiling cleanly, and then B, what a new budget for the coming fiscal year would look like. So I'm guessing that that's what they did uh, in the White House, that there was no ground given uh, on the matter of whether the country is going to pay the debts that it already owes and that it legislatedly owes. Um, But there was no uh, discussion about that, would be my guess, that basically, again, Biden said, that's what we're going to do. That's the only way, um, the only thing we're going to do as far as the debt ceiling is concerned, and then said, but we can always talk about what the next fiscal year's budget should look like after we we do that. That's my bet. That's my hope. Um, And if that's what happened, then he did indeed, uh, I think, call McCarthy's bluff. Well, McCarthy is claiming now that Biden has changed from his days as a senator when he was a proponent of negotiating and bringing people together. So that sort of indicates uh, what you're saying, right? That, yeah. that he's McCarthy's sort of saying, you know, this is not the deal maker I thought who would sell <laughs> who would sell out so easily. Right? <laughs> yeah, I, I love that. Right. I mean, this sounds like uh, Dark Brandon uh, did it again today. Right. So. <laughs> But still, the clock is ticking to June the 1st, right? Yeah, it is. So so where do we stand in terms of this looming catastrophe? Well, my guess is that the Republicans, either the Republicans blink um, before Biden has to say anything about repudiating the debt ceiling or ignoring the debt ceiling, or they don't. And then he does announce that he's simply going to ignore the debt ceiling. And then they blink in that particular case, right? Because my guess is they don't want this to go uh, to the courts because it would be politically disastrous for them. In effect, if they were to take Biden to court to try to force him to sort of comply with the debt ceiling when he announces that it's not valid, they would effectively be demanding that the courts effectively require Biden 
to default on the national debt for the first time in U.S. history. That would, of course, be contrary to contract law, which courts generally tend to uphold. It would be contrary to that legislation, which is the federal budget itself, the one that we're acting on and executing at this particular point. And it would ultimately be con uh, contrary to the Constitution, in particular to the 14th Amendment. So I think the Republicans are just savvy enough to know that they would be effectively asking the courts to require Biden to violate at least three forms of law, contract law, congressional legislative law, and constitutional law, they probably don't want to go there. They probably don't want to be in that posture. But McCarthy has dug a hole for himself because of having to make these concessions to the MAGA Republicans, to mm -hmm. the Freedom Caucus, who essentially own him. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in a, in a way, I'm wondering whether behind the scenes... You know, he's sort of saying, not necessarily directly, but indirectly to Biden, look, help me out here, Joe, because mm -hmm. if, if I don't come back with something, these crazies are going to kick me out. And, they, and he takes one of these crazies now to mm -hmm. uh, call for a new vote for a new, new speaker. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if he's maybe under the table or in so many words trying to say something like that to Joe. But the thing is, it's going to fall on deaf ears. And I'm not referring to you know Biden's age or anything here. I just mean, Biden doesn't have any reason to help him out on this, right? Because if you think about it, if McCarthy does end up being ousted because, you know, one of those crazies has veto uh, authority and McCarthy is just simply going to have to, you know, sort of in effect do what they don't want done and thereby be, you know, thereby lose his, his speakership. Well, the alternative then is that the Republican caucus is literally leaderless, right? There's simply nobody who could ever unite them to the degree that would enable, amount to a kind of cohere, coherent or cohesive body. Um, so in effect, they would just be a kind of headless monster, as it were, right? Um, and that doesn't hurt, hurt Biden at all, right? I mean, there's absolutely nothing that the Republican caucus can do if it's leaderless. And indeed, there's barely anything it can do even when it does have a leader for precisely the reason that you're citing here, which is that he's a pretty weak leader insofar as it only takes one person to you know sort of topple him. But again, the alternative, I think, uh, for the Republicans uh, is even worse than that. And, and I don't think that Biden has any reason to prevent things from becoming even worse for the Republicans. Quite the contrary. But one of the problems that at least I see, Robert, is that I wish that Biden would have framed this from day one months ago, that mm. he's not going to negotiate with terrorists and just lay that down. This has nothing to do with the budget. Mm. You know, this is just completely insane and, and irresponsible. Mm -hmm. And no sane person uh, would threaten to destroy the U.S. economy and the global mm -hmm. economony in mm -hmm. order to exact uh, some of, on their wish list. Mm -hmm. He didn't do that. And, and unfortunately, the press in their typical binary way that he said, she said, you know, mm -hmm. Republicans says this and the Democrats say this, that has crept into this just mm -hmm. to more or less suggest these are just dueling budget uh, mm -hmm. negotiations when in fact mm -hmm. we're talking about something that's non-negotiable that mm -hmm. is the debt ceiling it's just you don't threaten the, the full faith and credit of the United States uh, mm -hmm. for political mm -hmm. purposes so mm -hmm. we're, we're already sort of past that aren't we in the, in the sense that and by the way a, a recent ABC News uh, Washington Post poll found that 39% of the public support Biden and 36% support McCarthy mm -hmm. and 15% blame both of them. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. the damage has already been done. 
it's not clear that mm. if it comes down to a default on the debt ceiling, mm-hmm. that both sides are going to be blamed. So, and that's already gotten a lot of Democratic lawmakers nervous, wanting Biden to make a deal. Yeah. So I think this is one reason. I mean, I, I agree with you that Biden could have been clearer about this from the get go. He has, on a regular basis, said that he will only accept a clean debt limit hike and then is willing to talk about the budget as a sort of separate matter. But he do, he hasn't repeated that often enough, I don't think. And he hasn't said it clearly enough. And he also hasn't articulated the legal basis for his taking the position that he does well enough to sort of prevent that 15 percent from kind of getting a little bit muddled here. And of course, a lot of the mainstream press hasn't helped either because they also have tried to kind of paint this as a kind of political posturing thing, a kind of a battle or a clash of political forces rather than a simple, straightforward matter of just outright legality. I would actually love to see Biden make another comparison, and I would like to see the press more widely make it. And that is a comparison to, remember, I need you to do me a favor, though, in 2018. So here, right, it was legally required for Trump to release these weapons to Ukraine because it had already been legislated. And so there was absolutely nothing to negotiate about. There was no ifs, ands, or buts here. There was no favor on which the delivery of those weapon systems could be legally rendered contingent because it was already mandated. And yet Trump tried to use, right, his sort of power over the process of the actual delivery in effect, a sort of strong arm or in order to extort something out of somebody who he otherwise couldn't get something out of. And that is precisely what's happening here. In effect, McCarthy and the Republicans are saying, we need you to do us a favor, though. And the sense in which that's true is that they are required to pay the debts already, right? These are legally contracted debts. Indeed, they are legislated. Congress itself, in other words, has mandated that these particular debts be incurred and hence paid. And so when the Republicans say, well, maybe we'll consider paying what we already owe and are legally required to pay, if you, quote, do us a favor, though, i.e. slash 40% of the federal budget or something, but that's just not a legitimate move. That's not a permissible move in this game. And so I do wish that the press and the president himself would sort of draw that parallel a little bit more frequently, right, a little bit more clearly. This is a, just a straight up extortion attempt in the same of the same form, right, that, that Trump tried in 2018. And it's illegal, right? And there's no there's absolutely no bargaining with that. You simply say, nope, you do what you're already legally required to do. And then we can always negotiate other things. Right. But we're not going to negotiate what is already your legal obligation. This is not up for uh, compromise or for negotiation or for you know changing of terms or what have you. Maybe Mr. Trump is sort of used to not paying his debts. Um, he's a deadbeat, of course, and maybe therefore the Republicans who love him in Congress are now perfectly fine with deadbeatery. Um, but the Constitution is not, uh, and federal law is not, and no court would be. Right. But when you've got somebody who's pulled a pin out of a hand grenade mm-hmm. and is threatening to drop it, that's the problem uh, because the MAGA people, Marjorie Taylor Greene and that crowd mm-hmm. on the House Freedom Caucus, mm-hmm. I think it's actually a strategy on their part. I think mm-hmm. they're crazy enough to want the U.S. economy to crash so that Biden will be hurt to the point where Trump will come back as the, the man on the white horse to rescue us from the recession oh, yeah. that yeah. the MAGA I'm... Republicans caused. And, and, yeah. and with those polling numbers... It's mm-hmm. difficult to know whether at the end of the day the Republicans are going to get blamed where they should be for 100% mm-hmm. of it 
as opposed to what thirty six percent or something. Yeah, so this is this is where the strategy that I laid out in the New York Times piece today uh, sort of comes into it, right? So I completely agree with you, you Ian, that uh, essentially these these kind of MAGA crazies in the Republican caucus are perfectly fine with bringing back a kind of Weimar Berlin, right, circa 1933 or whatever, let the whole thing fall apart and come a cropper so that then, you know, a Hitler can kind of march in to sort of promise to sort of clean up the chaos, you know, a strong man will, will save us all and all that. I'm sure that's what they're aiming for, or at the very least, they're perfectly comfortable with it. However, here's the great news, is all that Biden has to do is to announce that the debt ceiling is not good law, that it is completely invalidated by the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, along with other legal arguments that I've suggested in various pieces that I published of late. And then he just continues to go ahead and pay the debt and just do what he was going to do. It's then the ball is then in the Republicans court to use that old tired metaphor. Uh, and again, what they are faced with having to do then is to try to sue Biden in the Supreme Court to make him default on debts. And there's simply not a court in the land that would vindicate a claim of that kind by the Republicans. So then they lose. Right. And then, you know, so we might have the sort of early tremors of sort of beginning of fear or uncertainty about what's going to happen with the debt as we approach that deadline. But I think Biden can actually eliminate that sooner rather than later and basically get rid of the source of uncertainty simply by not waiting. In effect, by saying even tomorrow or this evening, okay, we've decided that we're not going to abide by the debt limit, that it's just not good law. It is superseded. Um, and that's all we're, that's that's all there is to it. And at that point, the, the uncertainty is resolved, particularly if the Supreme Court then agrees to hear a case because they would expedite review and then they themselves would very quickly invalidate the debt ceiling. But my guess is the Republicans don't even go that far because they probably know they've got a losing hand and they also probably don't want to appear to be suing Biden to force him to default on the national debt. And so they probably just say, all right, we lose. You know, they wouldn't say that in public, of course, but in effect, they would just shut up and not be able to do anything more. So he should say this in the next few days and the I sooner do. the better, right? Yeah, stop I this do. agony. I do think that. Yeah, I think, you know, basically every day that he delays it is a bit like delaying a bank rescue, right? The longer it drags out, the more the panic spreads, the more people begin to worry, and the more difficult it becomes to sort of contain the damage. So it's best to handle something like this sooner rather than later. I think he should simply preemptively announce that he has talked with his legal team, he's talked with various legal scholars all over the country, and that all of them have told them that that told him that there are at least five legal bases on which the debt ceiling, as these Republicans would apply it, is simply invalid. One of them is the constitutional uh, claim, right, the 14th Amendment that we've talked about, but there are at least four others, including the prohibition on a line item veto, including the take care clause of the Constitution, including the later in time rule of statutory interpretation, and including the absurd result rule of, or, or canon of statutory interpretation. On all five of those grounds, the debt ceiling is simply not law. And if I, if I were to say this clearly and explain the grounds for it and explain that legal experts have told them this and that therefore he's simply going to ignore it and Republicans can make his day, if they like, Clint Eastwood, uh, by trying to get the courts to sort of force him uh, to violate contract law, to violate federal statute and to violate the Constitution by defaulting on the U.S. debt. They're welcome to try that. But, you know, good, good luck, guys. Um, but meanwhile, we're going to carry on with the business of the nation. We're going to pay the debts that the country owes, uh, and we're going to kind of continue to build back better. And I think at that point, Republicans have to realize, checkmate, it's all over for them. So 
he would, in making this announcement, he would say to the Republicans that the best thing to do, almost mm-hmm. like an adult talking mm-hmm. to a child, mm-hmm. the best thing that you could do would be just to forget this stupid hostage-taking yeah. and let's talk seriously like adults about a new budget, but don't play games. Don't threaten to strike a match in a tub full of gasoline. Exactly. He, he can be. He can play magnanimous here. He could be like Lincoln being gracious in victory at the end of the Civil War. He can say, look, I won't rub it in later on uh, that you tried this this move. Um, I'll just chalk it up to, you know, a, a, a moment of uh, drunkenness or a moment of uh, a, a kind of moment of indiscretion. I won't, you know, drag you through it in the future. We'll forget about it. Um, but yeah, you do have to drop this right now. There's simply nothing more to be said about this other than that it's uh, an immoral gambit, an illegal gambit, an unenforceable gambit in any court, and the longer it goes on, the worse it gets for you, comma, the Republicans. And let's work together to get rid of this stupid 1917 law. Exactly. That should simply be outright repealed. And that's another reason I wouldn't be averse to this actually going to the Supreme Court, because my bet would be that at worst, Biden wins by a 6-3 margin, and at best, he wins by a 7-2-8-1, perhaps even 9-0 margin. There's no way that, I mean, if there's one thing that justices, both conservative and Democrat, agree on, it's that the Constitution is not a suicide pact. And if the, if the Constitution is not a suicide pact, then certainly the Liberty Bond Act of 1917, which is completely obsolete and was completely preempted and sidelined by legislation in 1974, which gave us a completely new congressional budget process, certainly that couldn't be a suicide pact either. And so the Senate would, I suspect, I'm sorry, the Supreme Court, I suspect, would simply say, okay, that's just not good law anymore. Um, But, you know, short of that, the next best thing is for Biden to say it and for the courts not to end up having to weigh in one way or the other because the Republicans drop it when they realize they can't possibly win. Well, Robert Hockett, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Oh, of course, Ian. So great to talk to you again anytime. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Robert Hockett, who's had first-hand experience working at the International Monetary Fund and the Federal Reserve Bank of New York and continues to consult to a number of U.S. federal, state, and local legislatures and regulators. He drafted Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's Green New Deal resolution for the House of Representatives and officially advises her on economic policy. And he's the Edward Cornell Professor of Law and Professor of Public Policy at Cornell University. And his latest books are Money from Nothing or Why We Should Stop Worrying About Debt and Learn to Love the Federal Reserve, Financing the Green New Deal, A Plan of Action and Renewal, and The Citizen's Ledger, Digitizing Our Money, Democratizing Our Future. And he has an article at the New York Times, This is What Would Happen If Biden Ignores the Debt Ceiling and Calls McCarthy's Bluff. We're going to take a brief station break and back look into the why the Writers Guild strike has much broader significance beyond Hollywood in terms of the labor movement, growing inequality, the creeping gig economy, and the corporate embrace of AI, artificial intelligence, as a tool to replace human workers. Inflation's getting higher, makes it hard on the buyer. Unemployment on the Circulate. 
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Hamilton Nolan, who's a Labour writer for In These Times, who has spent the past decade writing about Labour and politics for Gorka, Splinter, The Guardian, and elsewhere. He's currently writing a book on the Labour movement, and more of his work can be found at his Substack page at hamiltonnolan.com. And his latest article at The Guardian is, This Historic Writer's Strike Matters for Everyone, Not Just Hollywood. Welcome to Background Briefing, Hamilton Nolan. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And as you point out in your article, in This America, our entire economy is built upon making millions of jobs worse in order to make a few people very rich. And what would be remarkable is if when you realize that your once good job was being made worse in order to satisfy the profit hunger of some faraway investment banker, you were able to actually do something about it. And that is what's happening, in your opinion, with the writer's skill strike. And why do you think it's significant to the average working man and woman in this country? It is. You know, I think uh, we are we're living in a time when uh, labor unions have gotten so rare in America at a time when only 10 percent of the workforce um, are are union members in America that a lot of people, I think, have forgotten um, what unions can do for people. And the Writers Guild of America strike, which uh, began last week and is still ongoing this week, um, all of the thousands and thousands of screenwriters who write all the television and movies that we all watch um, are on strike for a fair contract against the Hollywood studios. And I think that something like that, you know, it's easy to, to look at a workforce like that if you're a regular person who does, who is not a screenwriter and say that doesn't have anything to do with me. Um, but in fact, you know, it, Hollywood is a great example of an industry that is really strongly unionized top to bottom. And the main reason why working in Hollywood is a good job is because that industry is unionized almost top to bottom with several really strong industries, um, really strong unions in it, including the Writers Guild, who is now on strike. And so this strike that's happening right now, you know, it's, it's not just about a group of writers trying to get a uh, um, fair contract. You know, it's really sort of a... a one of the last um, mature, highly unionized industries in America where you're going to see labor in a fair fight against the corporate ownership class of the industry. And so I think all of us in America who work for a living um, should be cheering these writers on right now. And as the talks entered between the Writers Guild and the AMPTP, the producers organization, I guess, the Coalition mm-hmm. of Major Studios, particularly Netflix and Amazon are, are, I think, more of the targets, aren't they? Because the issue is over streaming, isn't it, more than anything else? Yeah, you know, I think it's. I think there are several issues on the table, and the, the AMPTP, which you mentioned, is a coalition of, of all the major studios that the writers negotiate one big contract with. And so, you know, within that coalition, um, as you mentioned, there can be different points of view, even on the studio side. So Netflix and Amazon and HBO and Paramount might have slightly different ideas about what should or should not be in the contract. But at the end of the day, they all have to um, come to an agreement. So streaming is is absolutely a big issue for the screenwriters um, because a lot of the 
the older um, contracts in that industry, you know, came about at a time when when the industry was driven by ad revenue, advertising revenue. And now here we are in 2023 and everybody knows that um, that sort of model of advertising revenue is on a decline and streaming, which is a subscription revenue driven model, is is kind of the new thing. And so you need to obviously build contracts that reflect the reality of where the industry is today. So in, you know, in the big picture, without getting into all the nitty gritty details, I think that's sort of what the writers are trying to do. They're trying to say, we need a contract that pays us based on the way this industry actually makes money and pays us fairly when our work is streamed. But your article points out that the Writers Guild of America is what they're essentially asking for would come to about $429 million a year, while the studios, apparently, their current offer stands at $86 million a year. So there's a vast gap there. Quite a big gap, yeah. Those numbers were released uh, by the Writers Guild, um, I think, on the day that the strike began, just, just to illustrate sort of uh, where the two parties stood. Um, and, yeah, it does, it does go to show that there's a big gap uh, between, obviously, where the workers are and where the employers are, um, you would tend to think that that would uh, cause a longer strike rather than a quicker strike. But um, I've been on the picket line several times last week and even earlier today before I spoke to you, I was out uh, on the picket line with those writers and they're pretty determined. Um, so <laughs> I think that that uh, ultimately the the ability to settle this strike actually rests in the hands of the studios because all of the screenwriters that I've spoken to um, really believe that they are fighting for kind of an existential cause, which is the ability for writing to actually be a stable job and a stable career rather than something that kind of crumbles into gig work and part of the gig economy as has happened to a lot of other jobs today. Well, that is, of course, happening right across the board, isn't it? This gig economy, a whole new generation of workers are being told to accept that they can be independent entrepreneurs when, in fact, they get no benefits, no pensions, no health coverage, etc. Right. And Uber and, uh, and Lyft and others have sort of pioneered that, and we've seen attempts at bringing unionization in those areas. And, of course, the money that these new Silicon Valley-type companies have is just enormous in terms of being able to launch propaganda. But it would seem in the case of the writers, almost everybody seems to be on their side, including President Biden. <laughs> yeah, I did see President Biden came out yesterday and, and uh, spoke out in favor of the writers. As well as uh, Snoop Dogg also spoke out yesterday in favor of the writers. So that's about as, as good of a range as you can possibly get when you have Snoop Dogg and President Biden um, speaking out for you on the same day. I mean, I do think that at some point the studios are going to have to look and see that, you know, the public is not on their side um, and they ultimately cannot produce um, TV and films without writers. That's what it comes down to. And that's, that's the power of the strike. And so all the studios can do is make this unpleasant and hard on the people who support themselves through writing and force those people to go out and walk the picket line week after week after week and potentially month after month. But um, at the end of the day, those studio executives don't know how to write TV shows. And so they will have to come to the table with a fair deal eventually. 
Right, but these same studio executives who don't know how to write, and in many cases don't know what good writing is, aren't they looking forward and salivating over the possibility of artificial intelligence replacing writers? You know, I'm I'm sure they are, um, along with uh, corporate executives in a lot of industries, um, and and AI and artificial intelligence and how it can be used uh, in the industry is, in fact, one of the issues on the table for the Writers Guild. They're actually one of the first big unions to uh, be bargaining a contract uh, in which AI is is kind of one of the one of the important issues. And so it's really uh, it's going to be an important precedent that they set what whatever they're able to achieve in terms of saying, you know, I, I think the the basic point that they're arguing for, if I'm not mistaken, is just the the idea that AI is a tool that can be used by people. You know, a, a human writer can use AI to help them in what they're doing. But AI is not a writer. AI is not a person with a mind and ideas. It's just a machine that spits out words. And unfortunately, I think that the government is not going to be fast enough when it comes to regulating AI before it gets uh, rolled out by corporate America. And so unions are really going to be the front lines of of dealing with this question of, of how we as a society allow AI to be used and 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 whether we allow AI to destroy a lot of human jobs or not. Well, I think I did a piece yesterday on, on background briefing about AI and the Pentagon. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know about the government doing anything about it, while at least the Department of Defense seems to be embracing mm-hmm. it both overtly and covertly. Right. I mean, it's, it is no question that, um, you know, Corporate America and obviously entities like the Pentagon are all full speed ahead on AI. And and in the case of corporate America, you know, it's because they see it as a cheap way to increase productivity. Um, But, you know, when you look at it from a a social perspective and a a political perspective, um, we really need to be careful about asking ourselves what is a so what what social good are we getting out of ai and what are the social costs of it and like i said um if you if you do not assume that the us government is going to rouse itself to tackle this issue you know very soon the only real institutions that have the ability to to regulate these things in a real way are are unions because they can put this kind of stuff in union contracts where it's enforceable and where the companies have to follow those rules. And so I hope that everybody in America, uh, whether you're in a union or not, you know, if you are concerned about the implications of, of what could happen um, with the way that corporations are rolling out AI, you know, look to unions and look to the labor movement because they are, they are the ones who are going to keep this in check or not. But the Hollywood unions, and, and just in terms of disclosure, I'm a member of both SAG and the Writers Guild. All the members that I talk to over the years feel that they are being gradually downsized. I mean, these unions have enormous pension funds and health benefits, but mm-hmm. they're gradually being eroded and people's residuals are smaller and smaller. So the trend lines don't seem to be, and of course the merger between SAG and AFTRA, I don't think helped SAG at all. So what's your sense about how much mm-hmm. 
health and welfare and pensions are at the heart of this, and maybe this mm. is a model for the rest of the labor movement and corporate America. I mean, in yeah. general, pensions have been downsized. They're no longer defined benefits as they used to be, and they've sloughed it off onto Wall Street with, with the 401k, which, of course, is subject to the whims and vagaries of Wall Street. Yeah, it's very difficult to even find a pension uh, anywhere in, in the private sector in America today outside of a union a union shop. So I, I do know that the pension um, is always going to be a big issue for the Writers Guild and for all the for all the Hollywood unions, as well as the, the health plan that they have, which is a great um, health care coverage for, for their members on the screenwriter side. Um, those issues are perpetual. And I think that what you touch on with the sort of uh, the feeling that the jobs are getting eroded. You know, I know um, from speaking to some screenwriters that one of the issues they're bargaining for is uh, minimum staff sizes. So, you know, they'll when you talk to the screenwriters, they'll talk a lot about how the studios have been constantly pushing down and down the number of writers that they have to write on certain shows. And they're using mini rooms instead of full writers rooms. And so they're trying to they are trying to reverse that trend in this contract by having some some language around uh, minimum staffing sizes. You know, I think, again, going back to a way to to just provide a career path within that industry, period. And also, you know, that stuff is tied into the question of the pensions, because in order to have healthy pensions in the long term, you have to have a robust number of workers and a, and a robust number of people working in the industry to support that pension. And so, if you allow the employers to constantly crank down the number of of workers in the union, um, that's going to hurt the pension long term, also. So, do you expect a victory here? I mean, um, I'm, my assumption is that a, that a victory for the riders might resonate through the rest of the economy because, you know, we've seen major struggles going on at Trader Joe's and at Starbucks and at Amazon. So I think it's coming into people's consciousness that there's, you know, a need to revive unions and for more people to join unions, even though you have a reactionary Supreme Court that's doing everything it can to weaken unions. Uh, and mm-hmm. a couple of uh, rulings that are coming down are going to weaken them further. So what's your, since you cover Labour, Hamilton, what's your overall reading? I, I mean, I'd like to get a little... Yeah. optimism here i mean uh, too, many, too too much of what i cover lately with crazy people like donald trump in yeah. a terrible war in ukraine tends to be somewhat depressing so i'm looking for a little sunshine absolutely i mean look i spent the whole past year writing a book about the labor movement um the labor unions are more popular than they've been in generations people millions and millions of workers will say um, in public polls that they are interested in having a union more than we've seen in my entire lifetime. Uh, so the demand is out there, you know, and people people know that inequality has gotten out of control in this country. They see it in their own life. They see that they can't support themselves and have a middle-class lifestyle uh, in the way that maybe their parents did. And unions are the answer to that. And so when you see something like the writer strike that's happening right now, a union that is still powerful is still in control of its industry, unlike a lot of other industries. You know, everybody needs to rally around that and everybody needs to support that because showing the general public that unions can win, 
strikes like this um, is going to just propel the labor movement, I think, across the country in a lot of different places. And so, you know, I will I will predict 100 percent that the writers are going to win this strike. Um, the only question is how long and drawn out the studios choose to make it. But uh, I would bet every dollar that I have that the writers will win at the end of this. Well, Hamilton Nolan, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. And again, I've been speaking with Hamilton Nolan, who was a labor writer for In These Times, who has spent the past decade writing about labor and politics for Gorka, Splinter, The Guardian and elsewhere. He's currently writing a book on the labor movement and more of his work can be found at his Substack page at hamiltonnolan.com. And his latest article at The Guardian is This Historic Writer's Strike Matters for Everyone, Not Just Hollywood. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine One more light goes out in a minute.